Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Apple's latest event along with new ARM-based laptops hitting the PC market. Will these be able to compete with Apple? And what do we want to see emerge in the market as this competition between the two continues to heat up? Then we head to Camera Corner where Wendy will discuss building your camera kit. So sit back, relax, and plug in because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what have you been up to? So I have a couple of things to talk about. I don't remember if we talked about the gaming chair that I got on the show. I know you talked to me about it, but just in case, a quick recap on the gaming chair that you bought. Okay, so I bought a gaming chair that was from the Secret Lab company. It's the Titan XL, and it was a uh, it was designed for the purpose of being a tall person. And uh, the idea was uh, all the chairs I've ever had are not made for people with my height. So I wanted to find a chair intended for that purpose. And I found this chair, and it was exp- it expressed the fact that it was made for you know, people from 6'3 to 6'9 or something like that. Not sure what number they said. But I can tell you it was not very comfortable. And uh, I don't have it anymore. <laughs> so I can't Are you 6'9? About... No, I'm not 6'9. No. I'm 6'4 I'm and some change. So. so it lied. It lied. It lied. It was not remotely. And I saw someone who also talked about, like someone who did a review who's like 6'8. And they said it was tolerable. And so I thought, okay, it's tolerable for 6.8. It's probably good for me. And then I, no, it's not. I did not like it. But that's also like just my preference. It's not the kind of chair I want. It doesn't have the features I want. So maybe for those who want that kind of chair, it'd still work. But for me, I, Got I didn't like it. Yeah. So So what are you going to do? Oh, I already, I already sold it. I sold it online. And the, what's interesting is that if you, if you buy one of these gaming chairs, make sure you check the return policy. Because the return policy for this was ridiculous because you had to pay the shipping back to them. So it was like a hundred and hundred fifty dollars depending on how you how you shipped it or who you shipped it with. And so I decided to sell it online. So I still lost money on it because I didn't want to keep it, but I lost less money this way than I would if I just shipped it back. And I've seen other companies that I was I after this happened, I started looking at the other chair companies there in the gaming space. Because I was looking for maybe like a, an alternative for this. And then that that one, like uh, DX Racer, for example, all they have is for details of how to return is just an email address to contact them. Like, that's awful. Like, <laughs> that means their policy is going to be bad. Yeah. I, that's why I am not looking at for, I'm looking for a different kind of chair, but I don't know what I want still. I'm, I'm still using the one I already had, which is okay. But hopefully I can find one that's actually made for me. But... The reason why I was looking for different chairs is I now have a new workstation set up that I have for my laptop and my uh, I have a, an extra external monitor for the laptop. So I have a two sectioned one for casual work, emails, documents, that sort of stuff. And then another one for all my graphics and everything, that kind of thing. And it just kind of gives a little bit of an, a, a different feel, not having to work in the same place at all the time. And while I think this kind of like, is, I guess this is a productivity productivity tip or whatever, uh, that having just a different environment for a little bit improves the, you know, the separation between work and not work. Are you completely getting out of your main office for your other lighter work? Is it like completely different room or same room, just different location in the room? Yep, different room. And uh, I also, because of the way I, s- I set it up, it's portable. So I can take it with me, even the external monitor, because the external monitor is very light. Now, it's not a very good monitor. It's like a 23-inch or 21-inch, maybe. I don't remember exactly. But it's a monitor that's I got it for the lightness of it. And it's um, it's not a very good, but it does do this, this job really well. So I can carry it without hardly any um, issues whatsoever. And then I can take it with me to somewhere I want to 
or, you know, I can move it around in my apartment or office and that sort of stuff without having to worry about like lots of different cables and whatnot to mess with. It's so far, it's working pretty good. Very cool. Well, I look forward to hearing what gaming chair you end up with. I do believe we mentioned the gaming chair before because one person in the comments had the idea of they took racing car seats, like the bucket seats out of a fancy car that they found at a junkyard or something along those lines and then turned mm. that into their computer chair. And I thought that was that really cool. innovative. Nice. Yeah, that yeah. would be really cool. Because those got to be super comfortable, right? If you get like a nice BMW or something seat and then you just put a little base on it and some wheels and you're good to go. But Wendy, what have you been up to this week? We actually got to go visit our FTC team. So that's the first tech challenge team. It's the big brother, big sister to our little Lego League team. And see the robots that they have and the kind of competitions that they get to do. It is so much fun. It's amazing some of the things that the kids come up with and the different challenges that they have for them. Now, in Lego League, we kind of compete on our own. We have a series of goals that we're trying to hit. And so every time we want run our robot, we're trying to get as many points as we possibly can. Now, FTC, at least this year, and I believe it's all of competition, but they actually compete together. So you have two different teams from different schools, different organizations, different parts of the state, whatever, that are coming together and they are competing as a team that was just there, made at that time. So at this point in the competition, they've actually seen each other throughout the whole year. They've seen what other robots are doing. And this was the last chance for someone to get a ticket to Worlds, to qualify for Worlds. And it was really, really neat watching the robots that they've built and the type of programming that they do on these specific robots. In this case, one team member was doing one part and the other team member was doing another part for the first 30 seconds where they have to be autonomous. After that, there's a countdown. They can pick up their remote controls and finish the challenge for the robot. So they had to put things in different places on this kind of leaning tower. The other robot needed to be on the backside, also adding balls or blocks to this kind of leaning tower. But in this case, it was a competing who could have the most weight on their side. Totally awesome. And our Lego kids that went with us to watch this competition, I think they're super excited. They're enjoying Lego robotics right now and all the fun stuff we're doing with that. But they're being able to see the much larger robots, being able to work with hydraulics and some of that other stuff that it makes me want to be involved in another robotics team as well. At what tier do they get into the BattleBots Robot Wars period? They used to have more of a battle style robot matchup in the past, especially when FTC was first getting started. But they've changed that. So there might be other oh. robot teams that do that kind of battle. You might be able to do it. Um, in another way, maybe with some friends. But as far as FTC goes, they no longer do that kind of head-to-head -head destructive competition. And I'm sure some of that comes down to the fact that the parts are really, really expensive. And teams yeah. can be struggling just in order to have the parts to build their robots. Because these are not cheap when you're talking about the overall kits. And then mm -hmm. there's a special controller that they're using, that their controllers hook into... And then it broadcasts Wi-Fi to their robot, which is one of the coolest things or maybe not cool things about the way that they have their robot set up. There were signs all over the play field that said, turn off your Wi-Fi and in different fun ways of doing that. Because if you had the Wi-Fi turned on your phone, even if you weren't connected to a network, and yes, they did have the school's Wi-Fi network shut down for this mm. competition, but if you still had your Wi-Fi on on your phone, it could interfere with the communication between the controller and the robot. And maybe the robot wouldn't work at all. It wouldn't do the things that it was programmed to do. So there's no more of that battle style just because parts are expensive. So, Michael, me and you go next year. We don't turn off our Wi-Fi. We hack the Wi-Fi. We make their bots battle whether they like it or not. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds awesome. like a Note fantastic self, plan. Don't bring Michael and Ryan to our FTC competition. If you don't want fun, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
If you want to be lame about it, sure, I guess. Yeah, every once in a while, I'm a bit lame. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> well, to be fair, breaking this the stuff that's you said it's very expensive parts. Now you look at what these these battle bots, robot wars shows, and how like how massively destructive they are. I could understand why people would not want to do that on a regular basis <laughs> or even like at all because it's very cool, but also likely pretty expensive. Yeah, it's even harder for kids to get funding for this kind of stuff if the donor's like, sure. Now, what is this going to? A robot that's going to be destroyed. So we're going to need you to write us another check next <laughs> month. It would be mm, no. My weekend was a little wild and crazy with robots. Ryan, yours is a little more quiet down home with a portable device? Yes, another new laptop, well, to try out. But this one didn't last long in my collection of laptops. In preparation for this show, because we're going to be talking a lot about ARM here, I picked up what was on the market for a laptop that had an ARM-based processor in it, specifically a Qualcomm Snapdragon 7C Gen 2. But this one is in a Galaxy Book Go 14-inch laptop. And so I'm not a huge fan of Samsung to begin with, and I'm not a huge fan of Windows, but both of those things uh, happen to be required to get one of the only devices on the market that I could get my hands on. This is a very inexpensive machine. They cost about $349 for this laptop. I don't think have been particularly popular. I was able to pick mine up at a Best Buy as an open box for around $249, which is exactly the price they're actually selling them for brand new now. So they already have a $100 discount on these devices. So not a good sign that they're necessarily selling very well. But I look at this as a device that was meant to compete against the Chromebooks that are out there on the market, not necessarily something to compete against an Apple uh, MacBook or MacBook Pro or something or MacBook Air even because of the fact of the specs that come with this. So you get a Qualcomm Snapdragon 7C, 2.55 gigahertz processor, about a megabyte of L3 cache, 14-inch screen, 1920 by 1080 because it's a PC and we just have to be 1920 by 1080 always for some stupid reason. Uh, it does have an LED screen, which was good, and the screen was a appalling 220 nits, which is one of the worst screens I've actually used in a really, really long time. So you're not taking this one out in the sunshine, are you? You're not taking this one out in the sunshine, and you're barely able to see it well when you're just sitting inside your room. It is very dim and dull-looking screen. Which is really surprising because Samsung creates a lot of this display technology in there. And I know they have a low-cost device. That's the idea here. But still, it's just it's so bad. The screen on this device is one of the reasons why I had to get rid of it. But I will tell you one of the things that impressed me is that even though it used that Windows Home or that pared-down version of Windows 11... It did a very good job running Windows. And Windows is very bloated. It is... Whether you like it or not, it's a bloated operating system. And it actually was quite snappy running the things that it could run. Of course, you ran into a lot more limitations because Windows hasn't done the same work that Mac has in creating emulation layers and things like that of what software you could run on this device. But if you were looking for something to just do the basics and do homework, you needed to get a cheap computer because... Who knows, another round of pandemic stuff locks stuff down. I could see why this would be a computer they tried to get out onto the market so people could pick these up and uh, possibly do some simple homeschooling and things. And then if your kid accidentally broke it, you know, you'd only be out the $249 now for this device. So relatively speaking, considering the price for this thing now, not its original price at $349, it wasn't a terrible machine. I think the processor actually was snappy enough to keep up with most regular workloads, browsing the web, doing some word processing and things. The piece that just couldn't pass the test for me was really the screen. But we're going to get into some other options later in the show that are coming out for the PC market. And we're going to talk about Apple's latest offerings that unfortunately put these things all into the graveyard. But again, this one really wasn't meant to compete against an Apple product. It really was meant to be something that would compete against the Chromebook there. I think it was a good attempt, not quite there yet. So we'll see what's coming next from ARM here. 
This episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you are in a team of one or a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving away $100 free credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. We changed the URL for many reasons, but the reference is Tux is the name of the Linux mascot. So that is why it's there. And so again, go get started right now with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform at do.co slash Tux2022. And want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So this week, we just had Apple do yet another event. And we know that Apple has already taken the world by storm in, in a way with their ARM-based silicon that they released prior. So people were really excited to see what was going to come out on March 8th. They were expecting, I think, an M2 chip to come out. And we didn't quite get the M2 everybody was wanting, but we did get an M1 Ultra chip that will make its way Ultra. into the new... Apple Studio. So I think their naming for the chip is pretty decent here, you know, ultra. It's not bad. Yeah, it's exciting. Not bad. Yeah, it kind of reminds, reminds me of like the Unreal Tournament days of like ultra kill. <laughs> there you go. I think that even though people were hoping for the M2, this one is pretty cool what they did here. So this interconnects the dies of two M1 Max chips, which was their prior flagship, to create this SOC or system on a chip. And they do this in a way that doesn't have the same drawbacks of having two single CPUs on a motherboard, which we've seen in the past. Instead, they're using this tech that they're naming Ultra Fusion. They, they name everything really cool there. Ultra, <laughs> Ultra Fusion. I mean, it all makes sense, too. Anybody can understand it, right? Well, I mean, yeah, it's better than some of the others, but you're using the same word over and over and over again. Oh, wait, that seems to be pretty normal for them. Well, I think that's a good thing in their case because they are not necessarily marketing themselves to technology or hardware enthusiasts. True. They're marketing themselves to people just like, hey, I want something that works that I can go do my studio work on. And I've been told Apple's the best because the commercial said so. And so... Tell me about this ultra fusion thing. You know, it's kind of like Intel inside where nobody probably that wasn't tech related really knew what that meant other than there's this Intel thing inside and that's supposed to mean that it's really good. So I think their ultra use here kind of fits their audience pretty well. Um, it uses a silicon and interposer that connects the chips across more than 10,000 different signals providing this amazing 2.5 terabytes of low latency interprocessor bandwidth between these two that they merged together in this process. So the way that they did it is brilliantly innovative and I think is going to create a really big powerhouse for them, for anybody to really compete with. I mean, the M1 was already doing pretty well. It was exaggerated. We covered that on a prior episode, but it competed very, very well. This chip is very, very impressive. 114 billion transistors, the most ever they're claiming in a personal computer chip. I didn't go verify that. I just assume that they they did themselves, I would hope. The M1 Ultra can support up to 128 gigabytes of high bandwidth, low latency, unified memory that can be accessed by the 20-core CPU, 64-core GPU, and 32-core neural engine, all packed into this Ultra chip. Ultra chip. Sure sounds impressive. It sounds ridiculous. Yeah. It sounds ridiculous, and I kind of want one. I don't know what I would do with it, but 20 cores and a 64-core GPU, I just think you're going to have a really good time on this. The problem comes in the price, but we'll get to that in a second, because also during the Apple event, 
they released a very less exciting new iPad Air that now features the M1 chip. Big shocker. 5G, a new front camera with center stage, which why didn't others have that to begin with? But now it's there. And a few other minor changes uh, with the iPad. So, yay, we got another iPad Air with an iterative upgrade and a new iPhone SE. It also comes with a higher price tag. The SE is meant to be their lower end kind of entry level iPhone. But this one raised its price, I think about about $50 or more. It comes with the A15 Bionic 5G, better battery life, improved durability, new camera system with smart HDR, photographic styles, deep fusion, those type of things. But, you know, overall, I think most people were pretty disappointed that the SE's form factor stayed exactly the same. And in addition, it was an iterative upgrade with a much bigger price tag. Uh, Again, the idea of this phone was meant to be that low cost competition with the Android devices there. But Ryan, but Ryan, guess what? What? The Pro got a new color. Isn't that so exciting? No, it's not. That's right. We also got a new green color for the iPhone Pro. I mean, golly, Apple, chill. You're just throwing all the innovation at us, man. The new colors. Right. But the highlight for it really was the Mac Studio and the Studio Display. Those were the things that I think are quite interesting out of this whole lineup. So the other things, not so interesting uh, because they're the ones who are going to get the new M1 Ultra chip in there. So you've got a new display and a new Mac Studio. Now the new Mac Studio, it looks like the Mac Mini, that little square, small, well, it really was never super small, but small device that almost looks like an Intel Nook. And it's really fat now. Like it just became completely <laughs> obese. M1 Mini is the only way I could describe it. Like it's very... It's, it's a super extra ice cream sandwich. There you go. Super extra <laughs> ice cream sandwich. It ate, it's like a Mac mini ate nothing but ice cream sandwiches for like 12 months. And then you've got this right. new Mac studio. Perfect. Yeah. The, the new Mac studio is really interesting because of the price here. So they're, they're focusing solely on designers with this device, which I think from a marketing standpoint for Apple's audience is quite brilliant move here. It starts at $1,999. That's with no monitor, of course. And you get the M1 Max chip. If you want the new M1 Ultra, it starts at $3,999. Never mind, I don't. Yeah, no, no, you don't. That really was an interesting choice in price here. You know, with, with that much money going into a device like this. Now you do get four USB-C ports on it. You get some uh, USB-A ports, HDMI, you get a 10 gigabyte Wait a Ethernet. Wait a second, Ryan. You said the 1999 does not come with a monitor. Do you get a monitor with a th- $39.99 price? Oh, no. That would make sense. That might actually make it nearly worth it, but no, you don't get that either. No. Oh, okay then. The M1 Max chip, the cheaper version, you get a 10-core CPU with eight performance cores, two efficiency cores, a 24-core GPU, and 16-core neural engine with 400 gigabytes of memory bandwidth. Of course, the Ultra 20-core CPU, 16 performance, four efficiency, 48-core GPU, 32-core neural engine, and 800 gigabyte a second bandwidth. So, I mean, everybody's going to want the M1 Ultra chip, but you can't get it unless you're about to drop four grand there. So four times Thunderbolt, one times 10 gigabyte, two times USB-A, one times HDMI. So they did throw ports into this. It's nice. And they even put ports on the front. It's very unlike Mac to give you ports. So I feel like, you know, maybe it's worth $4,000 if you're in the Apple ecosystem because you have ports now. That's something. I really don't (laughs) know if even ports are worth that much. I hadn't really looked too much into this before, and I kind of joined an online discussion group where I'm hanging out with some other tickies at night as I was working on stuff. And one of them was like, hey, have you seen the new Mac Studio? I was kind of looking at this, kind of excited about it. And then I saw the price and was like, oh, my gosh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Now, I know there has to be some additional engineering with everything they have going in there to help with cooling. But what that's also one of the advantages of the ARM chips is it's not supposed to get as hot as some of these other chips. And I just have a hard time telling anybody who's not 
already married to that ecosystem to be like, yeah, this is going to be the best choice for you as you're starting out as a designer, as a video editor or anything like that, just because the overhead of the hardware is like, ouch. If spending that money is not enough, maybe I'll add and talk about this feature and you'll change your mind, Wendy. This also comes with the world-class first ever innovation of Apple's including the zero repairability and upgrade policy that's known for all Apple computers. I mean, how great oh, is yes, that? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. That's an extra thousand dollars right there. And that's included. Everybody needs a system they can't repair. Comes for free. They don't even charge you extra for that. <laughs> wow. Just got to have one or not. Yeah. That's the big issue I have with this device. Honestly, I think the marketing's brilliant. I think going after the designer community is very smart for Apple because I think the design community as a whole generally tends to gravitate towards Apple. So creating a device specifically for niche. that, it's very much a niche of theirs. The problem is these prices, especially with pandemics and recessions and everything else going on, all over seem to be very, very steep, but it's Apple and I'm sure they'll sell a bajillion of them regardless. The other thing that they have that they came out with is a new monitor, a 27 inch 5K retina screen with over 14.7 million pixels with 600 nits of brightness, P3 wide color and support for over 1 billion colors, true tone technology, anti-reflective. They have an additional version that has a nano texture glass option. For those that don't know, nanotexture glass was first introduced on their Pro Display XDR. It scatters the light to minimize glare and things like that and improve the image quality on there. So you can pair your little chunky Mac Mini with this new monitor here. The new monitor will set you back $1,599 unless you want the nano glass, which then you're going to have to spend $1,899. But at this point, you've leapt off the fiscal cliff so boldly You've just charged off of it with all of the debt and things you're going to rack up getting one of these. So why not just go fully in debt and get the biggest thing you can here? I mean, why not at that point? Just that charge sounds it. sounds like a great option. Well, by the way, I, of all of these things, they don't seem very appealing to me because they seem kind of ridiculous. Although the hardware of the, the Ultra chip sounds really good. The thing that I'm actually interested in at this point is the the studio display. If it was not so expensive, I would be interested in this. But it's like, what, $1,600 or something like that? Like, how could that remotely be worth it? But there is one saving grace for this one. This one, this monitor, comes with a stand. I know. Crazy, wow. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge improvement. And for those that don't know what we're talking about... Apple has a very pro-level monitor prior that did not come with the stand. The stand was an extra $999, I believe, or something yep. absolutely stupid like that. It was $999 for a stand. Uh, although, to be clear, this particular stand does not give you the ability to go up and down. So there is another stand for that. Yeah. When there are so many prominent monitors out there that can have really, really good visual quality, color reproduction. I don't see this as being a need to have this exact monitor to have the name Apple on it. When you could go with something like a BenQ that still has an amazingly high quality monitor that'll give you really, really good color reproduction. And yeah, it's still an expensive monitor because of these pro features that you're getting with it and the color gamut that you're getting with it. But price comparison wise, it's a still of a deal with the BenQ. Yeah, but when you're talking 5K, you know, it is really hard to find a 5K monitor for less than twelve or $1,500. So okay, but it's 5K on 27 inches. It's 5K on 27 inches. Really, like what positive benefit are you going to get with 5K on 27 inches that you can't get with 4K on 27 inches for cheaper. The main benefit is that the 5K does give... A, it, uh, when I first got a 4K 27-inch monitor, I was thinking, this is not going to work out probably and I'll have to send it back. I love it. I love having the 4K. It adds so much screen real estate, but also I can make the, the, the... It's just more crisp. Everything looks better. 
and a 5k would give a lot more space but also the designer side and especially like video people who have to do stuff in who are doing video in 4k having that extra space does add a, a value there so i do think that the market they're going for it makes sense that they'd want to do a 5k instead of a 4k and it's the one thing i'll say about apple is unlike the laptop i got from samsung unlike a lot of the laptops i get in the pc world apple actually puts good screens in everything that they have and it makes a difference it makes a difference when you know you're buying an apple you're going to get a good screen and you're not going to get 1920 by 1080 like the pc world somehow and for some reason is obsessed with going through all of their stock of it i i think this is the best priced thing the monitor honestly out of everything that they have it's reasonably priced compared to even your options from lg and things you may save a couple hundred dollars not buying the mac the problem is that if you start pairing it with their actual computer, that's where you get the ridiculous prices, a $4,000 computer. Imagine the type of PC you could build for $4,000 in the capabilities of it. But here's the thing that gets even more ludicrous. You can't upgrade this thing. So if I spent $4,000 on a PC, at least I can go and repair it, I can upgrade it, and I can have it have lots of life for many, many years to try to get my value out of it, even if I use it as a production machine. If this thing dies, you better hope you have that Apple warranty and it's still in place and you're still going to be paying a lot of money to try to repair this thing because everything is soldered onto the one board there. But if you want more storage, again, they're going after designers. We're talking about 5K here. So your idea is what if you are doing 4K, 5K footage, maybe even 8K footage that you're shooting here? We know there's a couple YouTube channels and things that do that. And you'd want to edit this with the new M1 Ultra, which certainly by specs is capable of doing some amazing editing in this world. The original M1 was amazing. M1 Max was amazing at doing that. So we know this thing can handle some premium editing capabilities, but you're going to need storage for that. And if you want the max storage in this device, the eight terabytes, it's going to cost you an additional $2,200 on top of the $3,999. You can easily spend over eight grand on this fat little Mac mini. <laughs> well, I mean, that does that... So even the storage is not upgradable? The, once the storage, Maybe. no. Once you have picked oh. your storage, you are stuck with that storage. Now, the original mac mini that was intel based you could actually upgrade the storage and you could upgrade the ram this new design of course everything is soldered on so whatever you pick you are stuck with at least you have ports so if you buy something that doesn't have as much in there you can have some external memory but part of this is the look and feel of your mac mini mm -hmm. or i guess it's not mac mini in this time your mac studio sitting on your desk with your very pretty floating monitor and now all of these cords coming off the side to add extra storage is going to hamper that i use a mac look i mean yeah that's that's a good point the mac bulky that's what like we should call it right and mac storage is actually not known for being particularly fast or particularly good it gets a lot of bad marks in both those areas you're paying a premium in this case for storage which apple loves to do because i think they want to sell you iCloud subscriptions and those things, but you're not even getting great storage to begin with. And when you look at the price, like I can go get a Samsung 870 QVO drive for $729 that is eight terabytes. So when you compare that to the price that they're charging you, $2,200 to put eight terabytes of storage in the machine, it's just ridiculous. So that's what Apple is offering. If any of this is interesting to you, great. Uh, for you, I guess. But for me, I looked at all of this stuff and I was like, the only thing I had any interest at all that I thought was a reasonable price was the monitor itself. And I like Apple products, but I would wait for this thing to be used and, you know, wait a year or so and pick one up when I don't have to spend anywhere near that amount of money uh, to try it out. Because it's just, it's too, it's too much money for my pocketbook for what you can get because I know what you could do in the PC world with the same amount of money. But speaking of the PC market, they are attempting to capitalize on this trend with the interest of consumers in the ARM-based offerings. And there are several ARM-based laptops on the market. I talked about the one that Samsung had, that the screen was such a junk, I had to get rid of it. But 
they're starting to come into play there. Windows is starting to play ball, interested in this ARM world. I think we're going to see a lot more of them. So there's a recent offering, for instance, that just came out. It's the Lenovo with their ThinkPad X13s, which are ultra portable. And they're claiming that with their ARM setup, that you can get up to 28 hours of battery life. So now my interest is kind of peaked here. 28 hours is pretty awesome. Isn't the common ARM stuff, don't they say up to like 14? Isn't that like usual? Yeah, you get between about 14 to 20 hours typically with some of these ARM setups that you have. And again, the big advantage, of course, is breaking up your performance and your efficiency cores that they have there. So a lot of that wait time or time where you're just randomly searching text in a web browser, you know, you can expect to get that 18 to 20 hour mark maybe, but this is a full day. You're getting more than a full day's worth of battery life they're claiming out of this device. So I think that's very impressive. And it's starting price is $1,099. So right at the same price that you could get a MacBook Air with. 2.35 pounds, 13 inches. Here's where PC messes up every time though. 1920 by 1200 non-touch 400 nit screen. So there we go, right out the door with the crappy screen. For some reason, even though it's the same price as the Mac Retina, we got this junk screen put in at, here. At least it's 120 pixels larger than the normal. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. I don't know what is wrong with PC manufacturers. Can somebody out there who works in the supply chain send me an email and explain to me why PC manufacturers do not feel the need to ever compete when it comes to screens? Why do we keep putting crap screens in this? And you can't say it's price because it's the same price as the Mac Air nearly. I mean, it's within $100 of it. And they're putting this crap screen in here that's 400 nit. It's not even touchscreen. It just, it bugs me. Well, they don't even expect you to consume media on this. With a 400 nit screen, it's going to be exceptionally dark. It might be ultra light and ultra portable, but it's going to be hard to use anywhere that's even remotely bright. And with some of these ARM processors, you're hoping that they would be trying to put them under heavier workload, getting them to be able to use as a very lightweight work laptop. On this one, with the screen that they've put in it, you're going to be lucky to read text, answer emails, and the like. You're not doing any other graphics-related work at all on this. This is why it's getting 28 hours of battery life, by the way. So this is more than Apple's claiming with their silicon. But you have to remember that Apple's actually powering a decent screen. And this is a crap screen that doesn't require as much power because it's crap. And thus, you're going to get more battery life out of it. So it's not a win. It's not a win at all. And this is new. This is just launched. And this is what they're coming out with. <laughs> Lenovo's like, this is what we're going to come to market with to compete with Apple at the same price with this crappy screen. Do you want a PC or do you want a Mac? And anybody who's not in the tech world is going to instantly go, you know what? I'll take the Apple. I'll take the Apple all day long. Because it actually yep. has a decent screen in it, which is something everybody noticed when you go to a store and you're looking at laptops, you're going to look at screens. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's something inside that non-tech people wouldn't know. Yeah, it's the instant first thing people look at. You look at the screen, you <laughs> touch the keyboard. It's powered by Qualcomm Snapdragon 8CX Gen 3 processor that operates at just 9 watt TDP. Uh, it is a very high performance processor compared to the power that it's drawing. They're claiming the performance is equivalent to that of a Core i5 processor. You get up to 32 gigabytes of LPDDR4X, up to a terabyte SSD, Wi-Fi 6, 5G, 5G millimeter wave. All of that stuff is built into this. So definitely meant to be an ultra portable. Those kind of things you expect in an ultra portable. Two times USB-C 3.2 Gen 2 at 10 gigabytes per second, 3.5 millimeter audio jack, SIM card, 5 megapixel webcam, IR camera. Built-in support, of course, for all your cellular technologies and things. And the cool thing is Lenovo, Qualcomm, and Microsoft are all partnering with software vendor vendors to certify apps for this through their App Assure program that Microsoft's launching. So they're trying to get more and more apps ready for these ARM devices. But if they don't start doing something with the hardware, I don't think anybody's going to want to buy one. But they did mention at least that they are... They have Microsoft 365, Zoom, and Sophos apps that will have native support out of the box. So we're going to see a lot more of that coming. You're going to see a lot more offerings in the ARM world with PCs. Hopefully one that actually puts a decent screen in it would be nice. Now, if you compare just the performance of the CPU, 
I'll get off the soapbox of the screen for a second. The Snapdragon is just an iterative <laughs> upgrade over its predecessor, this latest version. So the Gen 3's leaked benchmarks score about a thousand for the single core. The prior M1 Apples scored 1700 points in that same benchmark. So it's not faster than the M1. In the multi-core, the Apple M1 averages around 7,700 points, and the Snapdragon chip here was about 5,000. So based on these early benchmarks, this doesn't even compete in the speed realm, either with Apple kind of pathetic. Yeah, but also it sounds like it's not even competing with the older version of Apple's. No, yeah, right. we're not even talking about the new stuff. The new stuff's in a whole new realm uh, for this. But of course, when you're looking at price, you're looking at the, this is about the price of a MacBook Air. So that uses the M1. So it's a fair comparison gotcha. there between those two. They're obviously trying to compete with Apple. I mean, all of, all these things they keep doing of are, are following what Apple does. The whole ARM chip based thing, that was not really a thing except for the low end hardware up until Apple decided to do it. And then now everybody's trying to do it. But when they try to compete, they don't seem to actually try to compete it's really weird that they're even doing this sort of stuff because i guess people will just this just assume that that it's good enough and this and ship it but one of the things that i was kind of worried about is because they're using arm and because windows has always really been a x86 based system it's gonna require emulation to have these applications run on these new chip systems so it's kind of weird because that would give an extra overhead making the hardware push out more effort just to get the apps to run, which would lower the amount of battery life and lower the performance automatically. And I think that that's going to be true for a long time because Windows applications, some of them are still even 32-bit. So there's a possibility that this would be a very long path to get to with ARM for these kinds of laptops. Especially for people that use specialty applications. There's a gal that I talk to on a regular basis. She's actually the head coach for our LEGO League team and the FTC team. And she was talking about how her laptop cannot, cannot upgrade to Windows 11. Because if it does, she's going to lose applications that she uses every day as they won't work there. Now take to an ARM chip where you're suffering with the same things as more and more laptops are moving to this different hardware. It's leaving software behind that people have to have to do their jobs. And so they're not able to upgrade at all. I think that's a good point. I, I do think most of these applications will find themselves porting to ARM. I think they'll kind of be forced to between Apple and Windows pushing this. And a lot of manufacturers will be releasing some type of ARM-based machine. But we also have to remember that this is not just an ARM war. Intel has its Alder Lake mobile processors that they're bringing to market, which is the first time we're going to see a mainstream x86 processor adopt the hybrid core technology with discrete performance and discrete efficiency cores in an x86 platform. And so when you think about can somebody actually knock Apple down a little notch, humble them, as we should be able to do in the PC world, as we've always done in the PC world in the past, or at least give them some competition, Intel might be able to bring it here. That'd be very cool. I I want Intel to to come back and become like this the go-to hardware as they were in the past. Because one, I do think that the X86 processors are not done. They have amounts of room to grow and become even better for what they could be doing with this hybrid core thing. But it also reminds me of the Atom, the Atom uh, processors that they were making, where they were mo the mobile approach, where uh, there was some. I had a phone that had an Atom processor, and it was very cool to be able to run x86 stuff on it because you could uh, actually do like dual booting with multiple operating systems, but as long as it supported x86, and it was very very cool. They got rid of Atom for some reason, I don't know, and I don't remember when they did it, but something like this I think has a ton of potential to battle against the ARM efforts. And I also kind of want them to battle the ARM efforts because I think that the, one of the worst things about ARM is that it's so fragmented because any one ARM chip is different from every other ARM chip. And that fragmentation problem that Android has is partly in due to the fact that they use ARM and having that go into the, the 
laptop or the desktop market, that just sounds awful. It has one of my current complaints when it comes to flexibility in OS. If you're using these different chips on these different machines and there is no consistency that you can put, say, changing operating systems. I prefer to use Linux over Windows. And so even on my ARM device, I really don't want to be wanting Windows. Ryan went, ran into the problem of, yeah, he's got the Samsung and this is the OS that it has to run. Whereas right now in the PC market, we still have that flexibility. And hopefully with Intel's bringing the Alder Lake and their mobile processors, you would still get that functionality that's coming from some of the ARM with the flexibility of the OS that you're putting on your hardware. When I think about what we want to see from an ARM-based PC or manufacturer to release, number one, there needs to be real competition for performance, as we talked about. Better software compatibility than Apple. We should be able to achieve that. Repairability needs to be a thing. Clean supply chain needs to be a thing. Better screens has to be a thing in PCs. (laughs) All-day battery... Uh, Honestly, though, when I think about what Qualcomm and others have out there, even Samsung, I really believe the only hope out there is something from Intel. And then someone like an HP takes a Dragonfly Elite base, which is a beautiful 4K screen, beautiful form factor in the machine, good glass trackpad, good speakers, good screen, good keyboard that's backlit. You take that and you pair it with something like a hybrid x86 maybe you have something that can actually give Apple some real competition. In my mind, that's what we need to see. Help us, Intel Juan Kenobi. You're our only hope. <laughs> I love it. Pretty much. That's kind of what it feels like right now. Well, we'll see how this all ends up. We'll see what comes this year from PC, both Intel and ARM base. And of course, we're going to hear more announcements, I'm sure, with Apple, usually around September with new phones and new faster processors there. So it'll be interesting to see if this is the year anybody can compete with the Apple. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use in trust, and you don't have to worry about expensive hardware here. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentications, such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Say you want that premium account. What comes with it? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation, plus priority customer support. You get all of this starting at just $10 per year. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me though, you're going to want to show up and get that premium edition to support this super awesome open source software. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us how we can go about building our own kit. Some of you have already bought your cameras, which is fantastic. And I love seeing the pictures that are coming from the cameras that you have right now. If you haven't bought a camera body yet, here's kind of a few things to keep in mind. If you're able to buy a kit for getting started, right? This is just building your kit. You're just getting started with the photography day one. I've mentioned it before. But those kit lenses really are an awesome place to start. You don't need to go out to the most expensive camera body there is. The one that my daughter currently uses right now is a D5300. It's one of the base ones in their line. It has all kinds of great features. One of the nice things about some of these less pro camera bodies is the fact that they can be a lot lighter weight. You're going to want to be careful with them as you're doing different things. They won't have maybe some of the reinforcement or the weather adapting to them to help make them not necessarily waterproof, but water resistant on some of these lower end camera bodies. But I would say pick your favorite camera brand, whether that's 
Nikon, Canon, Sony, Minolta, any of the ones out there. And that really comes down to personal preferences. Watch all kind of reviews on camera bodies, see what kind of features they have. I know it can get overwhelming, but just based on how you are going to be using your camera. And then start out with a kit, at least an 18 to 55 millimeter lens. A lot of you, depending on what you're shooting, may not need that zoom. But if you can get a kit that does have both, an 18 to 55 and then a 70 to 200 or 70 to 300, that is going to give you the very, very best place to start. You are going to have enough lens to get whichever shot you want from where you are. It takes time to build up prime lenses. It takes time to build up having really, really nice lenses. And if you find that, hey, I've got my 18 to 55 on and I'm usually at 55 or 50 millimeters, Maybe that's a sign that says, hey, it's worth me spending a little more money on a nice prime lens at this focal length instead of just running out and buying all of the focal lengths there are. If you find that you actually have your zoom lens on or the one that's reaching out further, the 7200 or 70 to 300, because you're liking the look of those shots, you are shooting things from further away then it can be a sign, okay, it's time to go spend more money on this particular lens. It gives you a really nice wiggle room in figuring out where you fit and where your style is inside the lens itself. Now, Michael, in your case, because all you take is selfies, you're going to want to stick with that 18 to 55 because you don't want to get too close on the selfies. That would be ridiculous. I mean, who doesn't want to see my pores in the macro lens style? <laughs> I think that's very important. All right. But I did that is interesting because I have noticed that I typically look at uh I I set my lens to be about 20 to 22 mm-hmm. on uh when I'm doing recordings. Do they make primes for that kind of stuff? They do make wider prime lenses. You can get all the way out to an 8 millimeter, I believe, so that is like super fisheye. And Based on what you're using your camera for and the lens that you're using, having a wider lens makes sense because it's not just you. You're getting the shot in the atmosphere of the room, too. So you can find primes in that focal length. If it gets too wide, though, you'd see my messy room on the other side. So I like mine right where it's at. You just get a little bit of the background, a little bit of my face, far enough that it won't scare you. And we're good at the 18 to 55 <laughs> that we've got there. But also I want to mention that we can go all used here too, Wendy. You can get kits. You can get sometimes people's whole collection used for a much cheaper price as well if you're in the market for this stuff. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to buy used. I've mentioned before, make sure you're buying from somebody reputable. Your very first camera, I wouldn't say go on eBay and just get whatever they've said is in really good condition. I would stick with buying used from a local shop where you can touch it, feel it, know that there is a good reputation of the shop you're dealing with. Other places like Autorama or B&H is a good place to buy some of these things used. There is also different lens rental companies where you can buy stuff used from them. You can rent lenses and test it out. The renting of lenses is typically more of professionals, but say you have a lens in mind that you really, really want to buy. You can look up and see what it would cost you to rent that lens, use it for a few days and decide, do I really want to invest the money into this lens? That's particularly for the very expensive lenses and that's further down the road, but they can be a great place to find used camera equipment, bodies and lenses. One thing you shouldn't skimp on, though, is the camera bag. This is so incredibly important. One, how are you going to be using your camera? I take mine into the mountains with the family. I've taken it as we're going on hikes and fishing and all kinds of crazy stuff. So the backpack version is actually what's best for me. I can fit two bodies in mine with lots of different lenses and have my tripod on the side go trekking up the mountainside with the family, and I'm good to go. Now, are you traveling? Are you going to different places with the family and where you're going to need quick access to it? They have the side messenger bags. Maybe a backpack style is good for you. Make sure that there is a little bit of room to grow inside your camera bag. You don't want just enough space for your camera body and your two kit lenses 
and then you get another lens and have absolutely nowhere to put it. You don't need to have it too extra size, too extra large, but make sure that there's some room to grow, that if you decide to pick up a lens or change things up, there is some room in that bag for it. You also want to make sure that there's plenty of padding around it. Now, it's not going to take a major hit, but you don't want a lot of dust getting in. You do want there to be some protection against bumps as you're walking through different things as it's being packed and unpacked from your vehicle and all those different places. So really think about the camera bag you're using and how you're going to be using your camera. And if you're going to be traveling a lot, I would think an option you could use would be one of those hard plastic cases as well to protect it so it can take some bumps and falls and things. Yeah, absolutely. That would be more for getting on and off your plane or if it was being packed deep in the car. But say you're getting out to take a walk as you're in the Redwoods or somewhere else like that. Your camera still needs to be easy enough access that you can take the pictures. And so how are you sitting? Where are you using that? That's why there's not a one-size-fits-all camera bag. Right. It's more of a, there's a ton of options out there. So don't just grab the first one at the best price. Make sure you're getting one that's going to work for your use case. It's interesting because you were talking about how it's one of the most important things. And it's something that I have never thought of before. But as you were describing it, I was thinking about what how I act when I take the camera off the mount. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, it's on the mount all the time. And when I take it off, it's like I'm holding the precious. Because I'm going <laughs> to, I don't want to break it or anything. So I, I'm very careful where I set it down. And I, 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 I treat it like it's a baby. And uh, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it makes sense that the camera bag is that important. It is a baby. Right. It's a little technology baby. And he's so cute. Because so taking cute. hard hits can be jarring. And it's even worse for your lenses. You do not want them taking hard hits. You don't want them especially hit on one corner where it might mess with the internal tubes that have to go in and out. It might mess with some of the motors that are there. So having a high-quality camera bag is super important. And as you said, not just setting your camera down anywhere where it can fall and get knocked over, get banged, treating them nicely is very important. Like a baby. Who's a little good, (laughs) (laughs) Now, some of the extra things that you can get, you don't absolutely have to have would be a tripod. But if you're traveling, doing anything with landscapes, I highly, highly recommend at least getting a monopod, something to help stabilize you. The other thing you don't absolutely have to have, but... Maybe saying you want to take more pictures of still life, something along those lines. Grabbing a flash doesn't hurt. Now, you're not going to shine the flash directly on whatever you're taking a picture of. We've talked a little bit about that in the past. Maybe that's a good one to bring up again, how to use that flash once you get it. But at least having one flash gives you some more lighting options. And you can usually pick them up for a fairly good price, somewhere between $35 and $40 for a low-end one. Now, they're not going to have the most power, but it's a great place to get started with flash photography. One of the things that I could not live without that I think is key to my camera kit are whiteboards. These are foam core whiteboards. You can pick them up at pretty much every single craft store. You can cut them up into amazing different sizes, anything you need. I use them on everything from taking pictures of people to taking pictures of food. They're so incredibly versatile, and I think they should be in absolutely everybody's kit that you can get at your craft store. So, Wendy, maybe you could leave us a link for a Wendy beginner's kit recommendation with a camera body, a lens, a bag, a tripod, a flash, and a whiteboard that we could provide in the show notes for anybody who's wanting to get started in photography. Just a Wendy recommendation. You don't have to go with these, but here's a good, nice mix for a lower-end beginner camera setup. What do you think? Sounds good. I will get right on that. Awesome. Well, that's it. Our 56th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on the Destination Linux network. Head to destinationlinux.network to check out all the amazing podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time for another ultra-infused 5K episode of Hardware Addicts. Nice. Well, it costs $3,999.
Now you just need to say Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> it's a grand total of three easy payments of zero dollars and zero. Dang it! We don't charge for this thing. What are we doing this for? I don't think so. I know How are we going to buy more hardware if we don't charge three thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars for the honor of listening to us? Yeah, just one episode. Per yeah, episode. per episode. That's the Mac yeah, way. It's the Mac way. <laughs> and the listeners are gone. <laughs> <laughs> See y'all next week. <laughs>